You're listening to Brave New Space. I'm Robert. I'm Keegan. And we're going to share with you all things new space and beyond. Why we started this podcast. Brave New Space is about sharing insights and perspectives on the business and commerce of all things space to global investors and entrepreneurs. And we want to encourage more investors, entrepreneurs, and policymakers to consider participating in this space renaissance. Keegan, what do we have on for today? Today, we are doing our very first episode of what we're calling Space by the Numbers, making sense of the big numbers that come out of the space industry that never seem to have anything really tangible attached to them. This is an industry that operates on big numbers and big acronyms, and none of them ever seem to mean anything, so our goal is to try to decipher them for you, the listener. And today's episode is very special because it is about a big number that came out of SpaceX a little while back, about the the price tag to get into space for SpaceX's new Starship spacecraft they're working on. So Starship, for those who've been paying attention, is SpaceX's new long-term project to develop a fully reusable, long-range spaceship that can take humans to the moon, Mars, and beyond. And in an interview Elon Musk had recently, he revealed a what he thought was a fairly reasonable price tag. And it the logic behind it was pretty close to some stuff we'd seen echoed by Gwen Shotwell and other members of uh, SpaceX in the past, citing that because this is a spacecraft that is completely reusable, nothing that goes up doesn't come back down and can be used again for a later flight, just like a, any other a normal airliner. The only real costs are fuel and some of the additional operating costs. Fuel costs they've ballparked in at around just under a million dollars, nine hundred grand. And they've given an estimated operating cost price tag of roughly $2 million. So that's our big number for the day. $2 million to get into space on a BFR. And the purpose of this episode is to discuss what that really means. And and, and I guess for perspective, your, your, a buddy of yours had shared this. This could be around 10 times the fuel costs of a fully loaded 747. Right. Which, you know, I mean, I, I, I looked at spot price, it's about two bucks a gallon, and uh, a 747 holds about 50,000 gallons. So, you know, you're talking around about $100,000 to fill up a, a 747. So it's not a stretch to say, you know, maybe essentially 10 to maybe even 20 times that on the fuel. What do you think, Keegan? I think that's not unreasonable uh, at all, really. I mean, they're using a 747 basically runs on kerosene and the uh, the BFR is going to run on liquid oxygen and a special variety of methane that are just a little bit harder to process. So it's a pretty reasonable price tag to my eyes. So they're expecting to do, you know, they say if you're talking about multiple flights a day, say at three flights a day. Yeah, three or four flights. Let's let's say three, then be conservative for now. I mean, do we imagine that that, you know, that's going to be the the same vehicle is going to come up and down from the same place? Or do we see that potentially it's it's launching up, you know, go, go, you know, maybe launching from Texas, landing another part of the planet, or do you think just returning to Texas? I mean, what would your what would your spidey sense tell you? I'd say that probably the latter that they would use these that they would use one spacecraft for direct space access. I don't see them using one to then go up, deliver a payload to space, come back down, and then be reused for point-to-point travel on Earth. Uh, that's a, another revenue stream that Musk and Shotwell have talked about at length before, being able to use 
a BFR is a kind of supersonic transport. You know, you'd be able to fly from New York to Tokyo in something like 30 minutes using one of these things. So it'd be a bit like having your 747, you know, you have a cargo 747, like a group that maybe say like Atlas, Polar Air run, and then you would have your passenger version. Exactly. But three or four flights a day, probably not what we'll see for the first generations of these things. It's probably going to take them at least, a, let's say at least a couple years for them to, you know, gain enough flights to have the confidence to want to be able to try three or four flights a day. Their launch manifest right now has shown that they can have a pretty hot, fast turnaround time with the Falcon 9. And BFR is being designed to be a far more rugged system. So those numbers don't seem all that unusual when you you know look at their progress in the last few years. So when you're talking about you know th- you know three flights a day, about 450 tons of mass, to give you a visual perspective, that's around the same mass of the ISS. Is that correct, Keegan? From what you've measured? Yeah, yeah. The International Space Station, which took about a decade to put into orbit. They could put the same amount of weight into space in one day using something like this with one ship. I mean, the, the numbers for this thing are truly staggering. So let's 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 back into where's the demand? Because do we see the government needing that yet? Do you see the private sector? Or is it build it? They will come because I see the government needing that. You know, you had groups back in the '90s that were building out fiber optic capacity a little too soon. And they, they, you know, they had some financial challenges because there wasn't, you know, big pipes, but not enough applications for them. Well, you have to remember that they're probably going to have just one or two of these things operating for probably the first year, and it will be primarily as a test vehicle. I think there is absolutely a government demand for this. Otherwise, NASA would not be sinking billions into development of the space launch system, the SLS, which has been plagued by delays and, you know, kind of... (laughs) Uh, what I would consider kind of the average amount of problems of any project that's structured like that. So you could conceivably see if SLS ends up being more trouble than it's worth, I see no reason why NASA might not come knocking at SpaceX's door to want to make use of a BFR. So yeah, we're talking about a vehicle that, say you had five BFRs. When you're talking about the BFR, it's best to kind of think of it as just an advanced space shuttle. I know that if anyone from SpaceX is listening to that, they might get a little bit pissed, but this is for just, you know, convenience sake, because they have roughly the same amount of tonnage to space and similar use cases. So if you had, say, a space shuttle fleet's worth of BFRs, you could complete the entire 135 flights of the 30-year history of that program in nine days, if you're talking three or four flights a day. I think the space shuttle program, when it was first being announced, said optimistically a couple flights a month was what they were shooting for. And by the end of the program, it was kind of lucky if they were able to get two or three flights a year out of it. So they're talking about a high degree of usability for this thing that we haven't really seen in any other spacecraft beforehand. The price tag for an individual to orbit is going to be the interesting part. So your average in the industry... We kind of measure everything on how much money it costs to put one pound of anything into space. Doesn't matter what it is, price per pound is what we live on. The space shuttle and the Apollo program both ran at around 10 grand a pound. Falcon 9 is a little bit under $1,000 a pound for the current iteration of it, last I checked. At $2 million to orbit, using a v- at 150 tons of cargo, that shakes out to just under $10 a pound of 
to be able to launch anything in this thing. That is a huge reduction, and that, that is multiple orders of magnitude we're talking here. At full capacity, if you filled this thing with all 100 people that SpaceX says that it can carry, that would be, let's say, average, you know, two, say, 200-pound person or something like that. It shakes out to to just under two grand a person per flight. So not only could you get a person cheaply, you could probably get a pet into space. Do you remember yeah. uh, back when? Remember stupid pet tricks? I, I see a whole new genre of stupid pet tricks in space. Oh, yeah. That's going to be it. <laughs> There's a thing people ought to be looking into who <laughs> not too long after this. Now, but but when we're talking right now just, you know, the bottom line cost. You know, what's that going to cost SpaceX or conceivably a you know space liner company or whatever to operate one of these things? Let's say we're talking a markup to be able to make this work. Say you were using a first-class transatlantic flight as your markup estimate. That's around a 10 to 1 ratio. So a ticket price to orbit would be, say, $20,000 per person. I mean, Robert, what does that sound to you? That's if it, from you as a consumer, does that sound like something you'd pay if you could be able to hitch a ride on one of these things? Oh, certainly. 20 grand, absolutely. And, right. you know, and I think... You know, the market still maybe people say, well, only rich people can afford that. Well, there's many millions of of people out there who could afford that. So it's not a small number. It's just not everyone. Yeah, we're we're getting outside of your Richard Garriott's and more towards, you know, a moderately successful dentist could afford that kind of a flight up there. I mean, people spend tens of thousands of dollars on a vacation, a terrestrial vacation. So if you tell someone... You know, for a package price, you know, maybe say $50,000, get you and a loved one up to orbit. That's that's great. Now, granted, it's where they're going, how long they're going to be there, how they're how long they're going to stay. And, you know, that that's that's out of the scope of what SpaceX is doing at the moment. Right. And they're and I think most people would agree they're right to do that. I mean, too many companies make the mistake of trying to solve an end to end experience for their customers that they don't actually haven't actually asked for yet. I think we're kind of in the same boat right now as when the first, you know, large commercial airliners started to show up. The use cases are initially going to be probably very government focused. A handful of people who are card carrying members of the More Money Than Sense Club. <laughs> and you'll eventually get someone who does put you know works the math in their head and realizes, hey, twenty grand a ticket for me to send someone into space, that means that say, University of Arizona could send up a researcher to the International Space Station or conceivably a module built by someone like Bigelow or whoever. So it's only going to be a matter of time before someone like, say, you know, the dean of the University of Arizona just occurs to him like, hey, 20 grand a person to get someone to the International Space Station? I could send one of my grad students up there, you know, on a re- for a research program that we could have never attempted before. So... I think you'll start to see that low price tag be something that a lot of people will start come knocking for. And who knows, we might see the rideshare to orbit model, you know, be the first attempt to use this. A bunch of people who want to, you know, head to maybe a cooperative research station or something that Bigelow launches and be able to make use of its space for a couple of microgravity experiments. Or it might be primarily cargo focused for a little while now. I mean, can you imagine what the nanosat industry could do with $9 a pound to orbit to be able to send out huge constellations of nanosatellites in one go? Yes. At lower cost than has ever been achieved before? 
and that'll also put increased pressure on all the uh, on the regulatory and uh, licensing side. Oh, those poor people. <laughs> they can't catch a break. <laughs> so back to people, you know, one crude BFR could put more than 100,000 people into space. And for perspective, we haven't even, I think, cracked having 600 humans into space yet. Yeah, around 2010, I think we finally, we briefly broke the record for more people had been to space than had been on Mount Everest, and then oxygen technology got better, and now Everest is like, you know, way up on the other end. So yeah, they're, we're talking about go, being able to eclipse the entire, you know, history of human spaceflight in like a week. We, we could launch that many people inside of, inside of six, seven days. I mean, it's it's staggering. And then if you have 100 BFRs, you could put 11 million people into space every year. And that's, I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just impressive. That's New York. So, you know, if I'm on the habitat side or lunar colony side, you better start thinking about, you know, big numbers like that. It's going to be really interesting to see how investors in the industry adapt to having this level of capability that has, we haven't even been close, not even in the same ballpark of a vehicle that can put that much mass into space for that low cost. And the question is going to be, is it is the vehicle going to be so far ahead of its time that the market is just not going to be able to catch up to be able to make use of it? Will government customers be enough? Or will this kind of be like the computer industry when we got access to the CD and suddenly we're going from being able to hold on to, you know, just a few kilobytes of data on a floppy disk to being able to just work with a million times more information in one go. I mean, it's really going to be interesting to see how the industry takes advantage of this. Keegan, let's talk about a few more hypotheticals. If they launched 11 million people in the space, would share what the, the potential net to SpaceX could be. Yeah, if they're the cost for launching 11 million people, the cost, not the profit margin, the cost would be $290 billion before you got to their markup, you know, which we which we're expecting to be, you know, like 10 times that. So you're talking, you know, $2 trillion of an annual profit for a private company if they could make that work. Now, will they be launching at those rates someday? Maybe. Who knows? Will their markup still be that high? Probably not. Once you start getting into high volumes like that, I imagine you'll be at a point where you're necessarily going to have to reduce the amenities a little bit, reduce the cost to orbit just to be able to make that effective. But this is a massive business opportunity if the customer base is indeed there. Government customers, no problem. You can absolutely see NASA wanting to take advantage of this. You can see the military wanting to take advantage of this. We have a space force now, after all. (laughs) Who knows what they might want to do with it? Research agencies, of course. But that's talking optimistically a few thousand people every year going into space. You know, that's 10 flights of one of these things. So, which I think is not unreasonable. You know, say two BFRs are making five flights a year in its first couple of years of life. I mean, Robert, does that sound like kind of a, you know, a rational thing to expect out of SpaceX, say, in the next, you know, five, ten years? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It seems like... the. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have, uh, I think, some nice infrastructure down in, in Texas. I'm curious to see if if and when and where they're thinking about a, a second spaceport and if it's outside of the United States, especially thinking about this idea of uh, point-to-point. I imagine BFR is probably going to make a lot of noise on launch, so... It's going to have to be sea-launched. 
a guess would be you'd have to find some remote places or maybe maybe offshore. And then that's probably an interesting thing. You know, how, how are you going to get people to and from, um, you know, these launch sites? It could be, you know, a whole, whole new uh, charter business there just to, you know, getting these groups out to these, launch, you know, maybe their launch sites on a on the water. Yeah, it's uh, you're going to you're going to see a lot of charter ferries wanting to take advantage of this thing. Yeah, it's uh who know point to point might end up being kind of the dominant revenue stream of this thing for at least a little while now. If not the dominant revenue stream, then at least the most common use case of it before the in-space infrastructure really starts to take off. One thing that's going to be interesting to see about this, we talk about, you know, them being able to launch a few hundred of these things at some hypothetical point and maybe, you know, between two and five vehicles actually being built in the near future is probably the more reasonable thing. But our justification for that is actually a little more flimsy, dear viewers, because there's an interesting thing about the BFR that we don't talk about too much, and that's that it's made out of stainless steel now. And funny thing about stainless steel you can manufacture that in large quantities for a relatively little amount of money, and more importantly than anything else, you don't need a lot of the physical and intellectual infrastructure to turn that into a fuselage than, say, the really complicated titanium that the space shuttle was made out of or any fancy composite materials. So you could build a BFR shipyard pretty much anywhere you want it to go, so long as there's just a handful of guys who have, you know, pretty standard welding experience on hand. So the ability to make large numbers of these things is something that is going to be determined entirely by the market. So SpaceX has the potential for a massive amount of growth for not a lot of overhead overall. Yeah, and this is just further part of this democratization of space and that it's becoming less about, you know, exclusivity or having, you know, even on the manufacturing side, the fact that you could maybe have people with relatively lower levels of training working on this is that really just, you know, potentially expands things for who, who can participate in, in the space sector. Yeah. You know, we probably are going to have to see these things built, you know, close to... Uh close to shore for the immediate future, just by virtue of the fact that, you know, the thing's so dang big, you can't really stick it on a train or a truck. And it kind of has to be launched at sea because without getting into, you know, the physics of how resonance frequency works, the thing has something like 30 engines that collectively have more thrust than the Saturn V. The Saturn V was the second loudest thing humans had ever built. The first loudest was a nuclear weapon. So they're not going to let you launch this thing anywhere except out at sea. Who knows, there might be a day comes where uh, SpaceX decides that even the launch pad itself might not even be necessary. They might just tow it out, fuel it up, and then have it bob like a cork and then launch it, kind of like how the Navy launches ICBMs, direct water launches. Yeah, all good stuff. Well, this is great perspective on making space more useful and space by the numbers that's not more useful, but just more identifiable and resonates more deeply with people on a personal level because, you know, a lot of people fly on airplanes. They're pretty used to that, but still making space, really visualizing space and making it practical. Yeah, this show is all about making sense of space, and we hope that's what we've been able to do today. So thank you for joining us. I'm Keegan. And I'm Robert. Thank you for listening. On the next episode of Brave New Space, we'll be having the first installment of our new feature series, The War in Space, The History of Military Spaceflight. Hi, listener. My new book, Space is Open for Business, is coming out soon, and I want you to get a sneak preview of it. Head on over to my website, robertjacobson.com, for a first look.